Hello, you're plugging into the Evolution Sermon Podcast. We're so excited to share with you another awesome message from Pastor Charmaine. Have a fantastic day. We'll see you at church. So today, we're going to talk lust, equality, and feminism. What? PC, did I hear you right? Last, everybody gets it right. It's a very Christian word. <laughs> Equality, okay. Pastor, we know this church is about social justice, so we're always headed in that direction. Amen. But feminism? Question mark. All right. So we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 to 32, and I'm going to read to you. It says here, You have heard that it was said, Don't commit adultery. But I say to you that every man who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. And if your right eye causes you to fall into sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better that you lose a part of your body than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to fall into sin, chop it off and throw it away. It is better that you lose a part of your body than your whole body go to hell. Verse 31, it was said, Whoever divorces his wife must give her a divorce certificate. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife except for sexual unfaithfulness forces her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Okay, so it's week three of our Sermon on the Mount series. And I know this is a pretty white painting behind me, but I thought, why not? Something different about someone on the mount. Now, we've established a couple of key themes and patterns about Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 to 48. And that is in this whole section that we studied for three weeks, Jesus defines God's law as love. And he challenges the Jews, his listeners of his time, to practice an attitude, a lifestyle that is better than what they've done in religion up to that point. You know, all the Jews have been taught certain versions of righteous living by their religious leaders, but Jesus starts to push them and take the standard higher. He addresses the root issues in people's hearts that need to be solved, and then he proceeds to give them a new practice to do instead to be more like God. And that is what he also does with the law of adultery and the law of divorce, which is what we are looking at today. Now I know, ooh, PC, some of you are going, what has this got to do with me? I'm a youth. I'm an unmarried young adult. Why are we even looking at this? Well, because Jesus being Jesus, this text isn't really just about adultery and divorce. It's about how we approach lust in our life and equal rights. So let me start by saying lust is a huge topic in Christianity. Agreed? Let's face it, right? If you wanted to study the history of Christianity with regards to this topic, you would not find yourself short of material. You know, sex is one of those topics that human beings are endlessly obsessed and perplexed by. Some of you are a little bit nervous. So okay, take a breath. Relax. I know you're thinking about it. <laughs> so all throughout Christian and Jewish history, scholars have explained, debated, 
try to define exactly what constitutes lust and when exactly our sexual desires turn into sin. Not because it's a Jewish or Christian question, but because it's a human question. And let me tell you, how Christians have applied Jesus' teachings right about these two laws have moved and changed and evolved over time and context. So let me explain. When Jesus first brings these laws up, imagine with me where in his time, okay? It's a context that is extremely patriarchal in Israel. Women are still required by religious law, they are still defined by religious law as property. Some Jewish schools of thought there were against this, of course. They were starting to emerge and speak a little bit, but they were not mainstream. They were not a whole lot of big voice and they were not winning any fight for greater rights. So, in Jesus' time, women can't have official jobs or careers of their own. They cannot own or inherit property. They were expected to become wives and mothers and were being married off as early as 13, 14 years old. It's a time when legally women were not allowed to divorce their husbands and only husbands had the right to divorce their wives. So imagine with me for a moment, what sorts of problems do you think a society that is structured like that would face? A system in which men held so much power and women so little. See, in Jesus' time, women being abused and taken advantage of was a common issue. Women being abandoned by their husbands and left destitute and poor and struggling was a huge problem. So what's interesting is this, right? When Jesus says, do not commit adultery in someone on the mount, here in this particular text, at this point of time when he said it, he addresses this teaching about lust and divorce only to his male audience. So he goes, Matthew 5.27, you have heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say to you, a man who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. Now, how do I know it's solely to his male listeners that he's saying this? Because the word adultery actually has a male and female version. And depending on which word is being used, it's either a female adulterer or a male adulterer. You know, because whenever it changes, the pronoun attached to the word adultery changes. Now, of course, there were women who committed adultery in Jesus' time. Duh, right? But because of how society and religious laws were structured at that time, it was rare. And when it did happen, it was a largely unequal system. So, all the Christians here, how do you remember the woman who was caught red-handed in adultery? That the religious leaders caught her red-handed and brought her to Jesus for him to stone her to death. Why didn't they bring the man as well if she was caught red-handed? Okay, okay. So what are you saying here, PC? That because Jesus said these verses to the men in his time, that means now in our time, adultery and lust applies only to men? Of course not. Use your common sense, right? I say all this to bring across a principle. And that is we as Christians, when it comes to the Bible, we need to do our best 
to capture the heart of what Jesus is teaching and then faithfully, faithfully apply it to our time and our context. So let me give you an example how the application of this verse has changed over the years. So 400 years after Jesus says this during the Sermon on the Mount, particularly in the larger metropolitan cities, the early church started applying this passage not just to men but to women as well. Because 400 years later, Christian communities in large metropolitan cities, in those cities, women started to have more autonomy, freedoms, and rights as compared to the more rural Jewish towns of Jesus' day. I mean, makes sense, right? Changing the application. So, good change. Now, that being said, capturing the heart of what Jesus says and applying it faithfully has never been a smooth road in Christian history. And so with regards to sex and marriage and lust, Christianity has really run the gamut of good and bad definitions. They have made great corrections, but then sometimes those corrections become overcorrections, which then turn into bad or at least problematic practices in real life. So for example, subsequent to the early church years, 400 AD, the teachings of Paul started to become really popular. And so by default, Paul's preference towards celibacy also became very popular. So I mean, let's be real here, right? Paul does say in his letters, marriage is good and being single is good. But when you read the whole of what he says, really he's hinting that to be single and devote your whole life to serving God like him is better than being married. True. And so this gives rise to the celibacy movement in Christianity which then turns into the monastic movement and continues to escalate that by the time we reach the medieval ages, 13th, 14th, 15th century, celibacy becomes an institution in the church. That if you want to serve God, you have to become a celibate monk or priest or nun. And not only did Christians hold religious leaders in esteem because of their celibacy, oh, you're so holy, so pure, in their own personal lives, Christians were predominantly taught to avoid sex as much as possible and sometimes take no pleasure in it, even in their marriages. And again, you can imagine what sort of problems that would have caused and still causes today. But then, in the 1500s, along came Martin Luther, former Catholic monk, he came and overturned all that and he sparked the Protestant moment, which is the reason why today we have Catholics and Christians in different camps, in separate groups. But I think that will change one day. So Martin Luther is most famous for reforming our Bible and introducing salvation by faith and grace. But in doing so, he also started to revolutionize church culture. For example, he's the guy that introduced modern music. Well, his version of modern music was probably not our modern music, but... He started to take the music from the pubs and the bars and bring it into the church and sing songs to those tunes. His wife and him left the monkhood and nunhood and became married and they encouraged other monks and nuns to do the same. And one of his favorite things to do was to teach about the beauty of marriage. And now, 500 years later, overemphasizing marriage has become the dominant problem in contemporary Christian church. And all the singles, which is the whole room, say, <laughs> amen. So, can I go on? So, 
culture and advancements created situations where leaders, guys, and church scholars did have to interpret scripture. Not necessarily to change the meaning of God's law or the law of love, but to better understand Jesus' teachings and how they work in our time and context. So, what do we do with what Jesus is teaching us here? What is he really saying to you and I, young people, about lust? Well, the keys to unlocking this passage lie in two words, guys. The word woman and the word lust. Okay? So, the word woman is the Greek word Yune. And it's a word for woman. Now, there are a few words for women in Greek, okay? But this particular word for woman refers to all women. Married, unmarried, even one's own wife. So, whatever the word last means, which we're going to cover in a while, Jesus is saying to men in his time, do not last not just after other women, married or unmarried, he's telling them, don't even last against your own wife. Wait, 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 pastor. So the medieval church was right? Sex is dirty even in a marriage? Of course not. <laughs> Common sense and modern day psych tells you sex itself isn't dirty. Sex is good. But you can probably see why this really tripped up Bible interpreters and, and, and leaders who tried to apply what lust is in Christianity. Amen? So, let's look at the other word. Okay, the other word is epithemial. I hate this word. It sounds so weird. It sounds like lust. So, the word translated in the CEB text here as lust is the word epithemial, which means desire. It can be translated as the word desire as well. I think this is where translators got tripped up. It can be translated as desire, it can be translated as lust, but the key sense of the word is actually this other part, to have a strong desire to secure a thing. So, listen, it's quite unlikely that when Jesus says do not lust, he's not referring to your human sex drive. He's not referring to sexual attraction. He is not referring to your normal desire and human libido, whatever that looks like for you. Okay, last year has to do with this idea of possessing. A strong desire to secure a thing. Now, some of you might be thinking, but pastor, this sometimes overlaps, right? Yes, of course, we know, right? In real life, unhealthy patterns Surrounding your sex drive can turn into lust, and sometimes it's oh, you don't know where it starts and where it ends. And here's the thing, right? Here's another question. How do I know for sure that lust is this meaning of possession and it doesn't also cover any sexual desires that I am having as a young person? Well, here's the thing. Back in Jesus' time, and even till today, in Jewish tradition, they join the six and 10th commandment in the Ten Commandments. You see, the 6th and the 10th commandment are seen as commands that go together and you need them both to understand each other. Now, what are they? The 6th commandment is Exodus 20, 14, which is what Jesus just said, do not commit adultery. And so when he says do not commit adultery, all his Jewish listeners will automatically know this is attached to the 10th commandment, which is 
Do not desire and try to take your neighbor's house. Do not desire and try to take your neighbor's wife. Male or female servant, ox, donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. Now let me just sidetrack a moment to point out where women and servants sit in this commandment. Just to give you a sense of how patriarchal, sexist, ancient culture was. In the Ten Commandments, our Bible, women sit between house and cattle as property owned to be men. They are not even as important as the house to a man. Oof. But I digress. Let's go back. <laughs> so when Jesus is talking about lust in Matthew 5, he's not talking about ordinary desire. Normal, healthy, natural desire. He's talking about the link between these two verses in Exodus. In the minds of his Jewish listeners, adultery and the desire to take what isn't yours are linked. Adultery and a strong desire to secure a thing, to possess another person like a thing as property to own are linked. So to Jesus, it is not enough just to not commit adultery, not to cheat on your partner. He says, don't even lust. Don't even desire to take like an object any woman, including your wife. Ooh. Now, just in case I'm not clear enough with what I believe Jesus is saying, I think Eugene Peterson actually captures it quite well in his translation. He says in the Message Bible version, you know the next commandment pretty well. Don't go to bed with another spouse. But don't think you've preserved your virtue simply by staying out of bed. Your heart can be corrupted by lust even quicker than your body. These ogling looks you think nobody notices, they also corrupt. You got a bit rapper right there. So you see, devotional Bible doesn't necessarily mean inaccurate Bible. In fact, maybe quite accurate. But again, in case I'm still, still not clear enough for you, yes, do not cheat on your partner is what Jesus is teaching, whether you are married or unmarried. But also, do not last is do not sexually objectify or commodify another person even in your heart. Ooh, did Jesus just take it to the next level? <laughs> yes, he did. Wow, seems so hard, right? But here's what I think he also did. He also took the shame out of human sexual desire. Your sexual desires, drives, and libido, whether higher or lower, are natural things that God created you with. It is not dirty or something to be ashamed of. The problem for Jesus is not desire. The problem is lust. But a specific kind of lust, a malformed kind of lust that treats another person like an object, like a thing, like a commodity that we can take, that we can own. You know, lust causes us to see another person as just another thing to satisfy our desires. And that is the unhealthy, violent, selfish pattern and perspective that we need to confront, we need to heal, and we need to transform. So you can be a Christian and still a good Christian and still intentionally objectify someone else. You can be a married person and still treat your partner with disrespect and abuse. How do you think something like marital rape happens? Right? 
You know, and let me tell you something. If any Christian, and this is a very common thing in Singapore, if any Christian tells you that marital rape technically doesn't exist because marriage is a blanket right for access to sex or in any intimate relationship because you are intimate and your official boyfriend, your Facebook official, that you have full access to sex whenever you want it. Consent is no longer necessary. Tell them technically, I don't think you are a Christian. Because Jesus says, do not lust even against your own wife. So our desire is never the problem. Our attraction and want is never the problem. It is our sexual commodification of other people. When they become things that exist just to satisfy us. When they become things and possession that we own and try to take instead of love and respect. Okay, I've said enough. Let me let you digest that on your own. Now, the next thing Jesus says after this, Matthew 5, 29, says, if your right eye causes you to fall into the sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better that you lose a part of your body than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to fall into sin, chop it off and throw it away. It's better that you lose a part of your body than your whole body go to hell. Now, I think you've caught on by now. Jesus does not mean this literally. If he did, I suspect majority of his male disciples would have maimed themselves. <laughs> Jesus is speaking in hyperbole. Exaggeration to make a point. He's just said, do not objectify another human being sexually. Now he's saying, do whatever it takes to get this problematic instinct out of your heart. Your thoughts. Your actions. If you have to dig out your right eye and cut off your right hand in order to avoid hell, do it, whatever it takes. This is how seriously God takes lust against another human being. So the question becomes, Pastor, what does whatever it takes, what might it look like in our time and day? Well, let's take an early church example just to give, our, give ourselves a jumping off point, all right? So one of the early church fathers, John Chrysotom, who was the guy who was responsible for starting to apply Jesus' words here to women as well in the church, he used to teach his people to stop hanging around false friends and even family members who influence you towards lust and covetousness. Now, he's actually giving pretty sound advice because, you know, studies have shown that people who hang around cheating friends are more likely to cheat on their spouses as well. Boys who hang around boys who speak and objectify girls tend to objectify girls or feel pressure to objectify girls as well. So he was a pretty smart man. But here's the thing. So the ancient church, John Chrysostom, he saw our Bible as an open text. One way we had to wrestle with in order to understand it and then work out what that means in real life, according to whatever knowledge is available to us at that point of time. So what knowledge do we have in our time available to us today that will help us better follow Jesus and live the law of love? We have a lot. Well, for one, we now know today that teaching abstinence is pretty useless, especially in modern-day church. 
You know, it's useless to just tell you, do not last. It doesn't work. If you want results, you have to teach you safe sex. And by that, I don't just mean physically safe sex, that's BS, but emotionally, psychologically, and relationally safe sex. Which means we have to teach what Jesus taught. Love is respect and consent in a relationship. That respect and consent is a beautiful thing, not just the act of sex. You see, what studies have found is that if you give youth the information about everything holistically, they actually make better decisions and they end up abstaining for longer. So that means if, I guess, church pastors want Christians to live more faithfully, more celibately, I guess, more in line with what Jesus teaches about relationships and sex, which is not necessarily celibacy, okay, if they want better decisions, then they need to teach love and respect holistically. Now let's talk about another dicey topic, all right, porn. <gasps> I could feel the air drain out of the room. So by now, the effects of porn have been extensively studied. And the secular world, not Christianity, has found it to be extremely damaging, especially to young people, and subsequently to your future relationships and marriages. Especially if porn is your first and primary source for learning about sexual intimacy in relationships. Why? Because majority of porn is not real. Majority of porn is objectifying, especially towards women. In fact, majority of porn is actually violent towards women. So it causes boys from a young age and men to form neurological patterns and addictions and expectations about sex and women that are unrealistic and often abusive without them realizing it. Now, they found also, this is interesting, this is less of an issue for women. It is not as neurologically damaging for women, but it still reinforces unequal power dynamics in their relationship patterns, where women are afraid to say what they need or to say no when they don't want to have sex with a man. So, pornography poses two problems to us following Jesus faithfully. It patterns us towards treating each other like objects that we can get, buy, or have sex with on demand. It reinforces a culture of male dominance and female subservience. Now, let me be honest with you, there are a little bit of positives coming out about pornography as well recently, okay? And that is, it can actually be a stepping stone to rehabilitate sexually damaged individuals, particularly women. But it is not the only way, and it is certainly not the ideal way. So listen, all the youth here, if you are serious about Jesus' command to love with respect and consent and equality, you're serious about not lasting, then listen, do your best, not perfectly, but your best to stay away from porn. And when you do look at porn, which I know you will, be mindful of how you are interacting with it. Remember that it is not sex in real life, it is porn. Sex in porn life. 
And remember that it might be doing more harm than good when it comes to your future relationships and your intimacy life. That is teaching you to lust instead of to love. It's teaching you to possess instead of respect. Now to the young adults, I want to say this. Do your best to also question the ideas that you've been given by what you are watching and learning in the media and on social media. Or through the value systems of your peers, your family and friends. For example, things like, you know, you need to try out sex before marriage in order to know whether you are sexually compatible to stay in marriage with that person. Now, is that really true? You know, be careful of the idea of we need to live together before we can know if we can live together married. Now, how true is that statement, really, and to what extent? Because I can tell you right now that most of the secular studies I have read so far contradict those two statements, or at least will make you re-evaluate in a more nuanced way those popular sentiments that those aren't necessarily the path to healthier relationships and true intimacy. That very often, human beings being broken, we use sex to avoid developing deeper communication and intimacy. Now, I have a lot of thoughts, but I think I should stop there. We can reserve comprehensive sex education for another day. <laughs> this is going on our YouTube next week. Good luck, the evolution. <laughs> now, I want to go on. Is that all right? Can I get to the part about equality? Okay, so let's get to the third part of our passage today. Matthew 5, 31, 32. It was said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a divorce certificate. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife except for sexual unfaithfulness forces her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So we start with adultery, which Jesus pushes further by teaching, do not even lust in your heart. Then of that, he decides to address the Jewish law of divorce. Okay, it seems like a natural progression, right? Adultery, then divorce, makes sense. But here's the thing. When Jesus now starts going into this topic of divorce, he's not just making a natural progression. He's actually intentionally provoking a hot-button topic that was happening in his time. You see, in Jesus' time, there was a raging debate going on in Judaism with regards to divorce. You know, like how today, LGBTQ inclusion is a hot-button topic in the church world, right? Divorce was the hot-button topic in religion in Jesus' time. And specifically, this question. Get ready for this. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Wait, what, what, what? For any and every reason? Yes. That was the big theological and ethical question of the day. Now, because again, remember the time and context Jesus is in, right? But let's get into even more history about this. Is that all right? So there are 613 laws in our Old Testament. This is including the Ten Commandments. So 603 Laws plus 10 commandments, 613, okay? But out of these 613, do you know, this is the funny thing, only two are about divorce. Two. But this is the hot button topic of the day. The first is Exodus 21, verse 10, where it says, 
If a man takes another woman for himself, he may not reduce her, this is referring to the first wife, her food, clothing, or marital rights. The CEB very, very tame here, basically it means sex, okay? May not reduce her food, clothing, or conjugal rights. If he doesn't do these three things for her, the first wife will go free without payment for no money. Now again, remember what's happening here in this time. Exodus 21 now is way before Jesus' time. Possibly around 6,000 years before Jesus' time. So if you thought women were having a rubbish time in Jesus' time, imagine what it's like right now in Exodus 21. This is post hundreds of years of slavery in Egypt. This is ancient Israel that still practices polygamy and is patriarchal in the extreme. And so again, who gets the short end of the stick here? Women. Men can literally acquire women as property and discard them as property. So God, or if you prefer, God through Moses or Israel's leader creates a law to minimize the damage. This law in Exodus 21. Which means that husbands cannot abuse, neglect, or, dis or discard their first wives when they take a second wife. Okay, I know, take a breath again. It's not ideal, take a breath everyone, this is 6000 BC, okay? So God isn't creating a law right now for the law of love or the law of ideal like Jesus is doing. He's creating a law to move the needle forwards in a world that is really backward. So this law in Exodus 21 is not our ideal law, but it is a radical law to protect women in 6,000, 8,000 BC. In fact, it becomes a law that radically sets Israel apart from the rest of their neighbors in the ancient world. The fact that Israel has a law that protects women. So it's not ideal in our time, but it's revolutionary in their time. God pushes the world ethic up through Israel. So he goes, if you take another wife, you cannot reduce the first wife's food, clothing, or deprive her of sex, which includes back then the ability to bear children, right? If you abuse or neglect or treat her with injustice, she may go free without any consequence. I mean, think about it for a moment. That is how bad it is right now. A man can divorce his wife and she will have to pay him. Okay, so... This law was created to protect the rights of women. Now, there's a second divorce law, and it's this law that Jesus is quoting in Matthew chapter 5. Deuteronomy 24, 1 to 4, it says, Let's say a man marries a woman, but she isn't pleasing to him because he's discovered something inappropriate about her. So he writes up divorce papers, hands them to her, and sends her out of his house. She leaves his house and ends up marrying someone else, but this new husband also dislikes her. Writes up divorce papers, hands them to her, and sends her out of his house. Or suppose the second husband dies, brackets. So weird. In this case, the first husband who originally divorced the woman is not allowed to take her back and marry her again after she has been polluted in this way because the Lord detests that. Don't pollute the land of the Lord your God that he's given you to you as inheritance. So, the raging divorce debate in Jesus' time was about this law in Deuteronomy. And the focus of this debate was, what does it mean that the husbands in Deuteronomy 24 were displeased or disliked the wife? 
And what was this inappropriate thing that she did in her first marriage? So, there are two schools of thought, of interpretation of this verse, okay? The first school of thought belonged to a famous rabbi named Shammai, who took into consideration Exodus 21 when he was interpreting, when he was interpreting Deuteronomy 24. He took into consideration the need to protect the rights of women. So he believed the word inappropriate in Deuteronomy had to be defined as adultery. That adultery is the only grounds for a Jewish man to initiate divorce from his wife. Got it? The second school of thought belonged to a guy named Rabbi Hillel. And he took his cue from the words, isn't pleasing and dislikes. And so, Rabbi Hillel taught his followers, anything that displeases a husband is grounds for divorce. This is him. He says, if your wife bakes bread and burns it, that is indecent and inappropriate and grounds for you to divorce her. Another rabbi, Rabbi Asiba from the same school said, if your wife becomes displeasing in your eyes, in other words, she's no longer pretty to you, it is grounds for divorce. I guess not much has changed in 2,000 years. But think about what that means for Jews in Jesus' time, especially women. Only men can divorce, and they can do so for any and every reason. So when archaeologists dug up divorce certificates from around Jesus' time, can you guess which school of thought had become the dominant thought in Jerusalem, in Judaism? The second. Exodus 21, the protection of women was totally ignored in Jesus' day. So this is such a problematic issue of justice to Jesus and to Matthew who is writing to Jewish Christians that he documents Jesus answering to it twice. Once here in Sermon on the Mount and another time in an incident in Matthew 19. Now go home and read that one because you'll be shocked at what Jesus' disciples had to say about what Jesus had to say. When Jesus said, you cannot divorce your wife for any and every reason, they replied, Jesus, what you're saying is too hard. Cannot divorce our wives when we're not happy with them? Cannot divorce them if they stop being attractive to us? We might as well stay single than ever get married is what they said. So this tells you what the mindset of women's rights was in Jesus' time. But Jesus doesn't care. So he says it plainly and directly in Matthew 5 in Sermon on the Mount. He says, it was said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a divorce certificate. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife except for sexual unfaithfulness forces her to commit adultery. So Jesus is giving a direct answer to this debate. He is saying, I disagree with the mainstream viewpoint. And I agree with Rabbi Shammai and Exodus 21 that women need to have greater protections and rights. And he's also, listen, plunged a knife in even deeper because just before this, he's talked about lust and hell. He said, you men ought to dig out your eye and cut off your hand because you are ungodly and in danger of going to hell. And then second, here he says, when you live your lives and culture and practice by this unjust law, you are the unrighteous ones forcing righteous women to become adulterous. Women are not the problem, you are. Ooh. Wow. 
This is Jesus. I don't like the way you're interpreting God's law. I don't like the way you've applied God's law. Your law continues to oppress and not protect because you objectify and disrespect the women in your community. So listen, Jesus is being pretty scathing in this passage. Pretty provocative to mainstream thought. But again, Jesus doesn't give us anything exact here. His words aren't very extensive, but the implications are pretty vast. So it argues, you see, Jesus argues for human relationships, particularly in the area of sexuality, marriage, and society, to be looked at from a place of love, respect, and protection for the oppressed. You see, equality wasn't an idea, a concept, a word that even existed back in Jesus' time. Even the idea of democracy that we know today was in infancy back then. But I think if Jesus had lived in our day and had our words... He would be at the forefront of feminism and any fight for any group's equality. You know, he, back then in his time, he might not have had the political power to change laws. But if you look at his life, when you read the Bible, he was really radical. You see, the fact is, in a climate like that, a time like that, to even have women disciples was radical to Jesus. Now, think about it for a moment, right? He was the son of God, born to a 14, 50-year-old Jewish girl. The Bible talks non-stop about Mary and says very little about Joseph. You know, people like to emphasize his 12 disciples were men, not women. So therefore, you know, leaders can only be men. But listen, he had women disciples. That was ridiculous in his time. People call him a sinner because he had women in his team. You know, he chose a Samaritan woman to go and save her whole town and not a Samaritan man. He let a woman with an alabaster jar of oil school his disciples on generosity. And when he was resurrected, he appeared to his women disciples first. So, friend, it was just a matter of time, in Paul's time, then that women also started to become apostles in the church. And to me, it is a matter of time before Jesus brings greater equality in contemporary life and Christianity and the world at large. Because to Jesus, love is equality. And the path to equality is feminism and inclusion of all people. So it's really funny, right, how for so long mainstream Christianity seems to be unable to see this about Jesus. We like to say men and women have different roles. We need to obey the laws about gender that God has created in the natural world for us. But here's the thing, I hardly think even the most conservative Christian who's in their right mind, right mind, <laughs> could argue for an interpretation of the Ten Commandments that still treats women as property. Or that men should divorce their wives for not looking pretty enough. Well, maybe not divorce, pastor, but we should have a right to be unhappy, to criticize, to treat women badly for it. We should get to say on the pulpit that women need to look attractive for their husbands in order to stay married. You know what Jesus would have to say to you? Dig out your eye, cut off your hand because you're in danger of hell. Stop objectifying your wife or any other woman. Stop trying to possess and control people. And whenever greater equality arrives, listen, all the girls here in this room, those of us who are non-binary as well, however you identify gender orientation, this principle applies to you too. Never objectify another human being. Never seek to possess, 
to use someone as your personal sexual commodity, whether sexually or relationally. Because love to Jesus is respect, consent, and equality. Amen? And that's all I have for you today.